I think the way I described it to people at the time was like, no one else is stupid enough or crazy enough to try and do this thing. And so weirdly, there's an opportunity there because if it works, and I really believed that it would, it's going to be fundamentally and foundationally better as a product. If you can build this thing, it'll sort of like beat all of the sort of market incumbents. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. How'd you two meet? Mamoon and I? Yeah. We met when I was running my last company very early on. Zenefits. Zenefits, yeah. I was How at early? a different company. It's a name I don't like to talk about. And Mamoon was at a different firm's you know, name. Maybe he doesn't like to talk about it. Right? <laughs> How early in Zenefits did you meet? Pretty early on. I mean, I think it was um, less than 20 employees at the time. I know you have your own opinions about venture capital and venture capitalists. So give me your honest take. Like, What did you think when you met Mamoon? Mamoon seemed like just a really decent, genuine person. And did you try and get into the round? Did you try and do anything? Well, it was a seed stage company at the time. Yeah. And eminently, Parker went to go raise a Series A maybe like months later. And yes, absolutely. And it was the toughest loss of my career. I mean, maybe it was the most fortunate loss of your career, (laughs) depending on how you look at it. Maybe sort of the most unfortunate choice of my career. But... (laughs) Let's get into it. Um, But yeah, no, it didn't work out very well. It worked out great for me. Honest take, what'd you think of this? Because you had just come off the heels of a pretty tough ride at the startup before Zenefits. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, I knew that company as well, but meeting Parker, I I met him actually through Aaron at Box, who had, I think, seed invested in Zenefits at the time. And unfortunately for him, he has not seed invested in Rippling. Are you kidding? I emailed him when we were raising our seed. I think it's just probably he was busy and missed the email or something. (laughs) He doesn't miss emails. (laughs) Really? Oh, I don't know. Devastating risk. (laughs) So at the time, Parker and Zenefits unlocked this really clever, I call it like a hack, which was... You're not selling software, you're giving away software and monetizing insurance benefits. And the amount of dollars you could get out of a 10-person, 20-person company from selling benefits was a lot more attractive, just juicier than selling them you know, SaaS software. And for that reason alone, the business was just growing like exponentially at the very early stages with 20 people. So when the Series A came along, it was a, hey, they've unlocked something here and they've unlocked growth. They're executing. This is a just a rocket ship. And I think it was a rocket ship for quite a bit. So I think beyond just the business itself, the cleverness of the business and then the vision of where Parker wanted to take Zenefits with the different product lines, uh, which is not, I think, too dissimilar from where Rippling is today. I think the vision was always there. For me, it was, that's why I call it like a tough loss. It was like, I saw the vision and really want to be part of it. But Parker had lots of choices. Yeah. Was it whiplashy going from, how long were you at SigFig for? Like seven years. Seven years of banging your head against the wall. Yeah. And basically not working and trying to pitch every venture capitalist and no one really giving a shit. Yeah. To then going to Zenefits where everybody cared. Was that an extreme having to go from one end to the other? Like, what was that like? All of a sudden you're like, wait a second, 
I'm only six months removed from this experience and now everyone's like wants a piece of this. The thing that was surprising to me first before the sort of investor interest was really the customer, like the way it was working for customers. I mean, that was the biggest difference is that at my first company, we would have sort of five things that we would want that we would think like, man, this stuff should probably work. Here are five things that we want to try to kind of like get growth and revenue and that sort of thing. And we would try those five things and four of them would fail completely. And one of them would mostly fail, but there would be some glimmer of hope in it that was sort of large enough that we would kind of like pivot the company towards that and come up with the next set of five things. And that would sort of take us for the next sort of six months to a year. And we sort of continued on that path for seven years while I was there. And I see that sometimes with founders today that, you know, people come to me and they're like, how do I get go to market to work? You know, why is it not working? And it's like, there's nothing when it's fundamentally just not working. I think there's very little that you can do other than probably give up. And then suddenly at Zenefits, it was like the exact opposite. It was like, we would have five things that we wanted to try and all five of them would work unbelievably well. And we would try one or two other things that we thought probably wouldn't work anyway. And those things would work, you know, as well. And so kind of everything was working incredibly well. That was the big difference. And then I think the investor interest like really followed that. I get a lot of questions from people asking me for fundraising advice. I think I have a reputation that I'm not like super proud of for being like good at fundraising. I'd rather be known for being like good at building the company. And I actually don't think I'm, I'm, I am very good at fundraising. I think that like when the business is not working, it's kind of like there's nothing that you can do. And when things are working really, really well, you can't screw it up. And so the best thing that you can do to make yourself attractive to investors is you have to be so good that they can't ignore you. And that's like the only thing, everything else is like a rounding error on a fundraising process. And I think what happened with Zenefits was the thing that was surprising was that the business was working so well, so clearly, at least for those first like two or three years. And the investor stuff and the fundraising just kind of followed that. Yeah, yeah. That was sort of, you know, a result of that. Can I share a story? Yeah, you call me bullshit. No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, I, yeah. I think, I mean, what Parker just said completely resonates. I think you're great at fundraising because you're great at building a business. So it just follows the primary objective that you have. But the story is that lose a series A, another firm does it. Zenefits. Yes, yeah. Zenefits. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember this, Parker, but we're here in South Park. You and I were walking on Second Street and you look at me and say, hey, like, you know, you missed the Series A, like, I want to raise the Series B and I'd like to do it at 500 posts and I'll shake with you on it right now. And you just come off of a 60 post, 70 post around, I think, three months prior. I'm not sure what year this is. I don't is. remember this at all. Okay. Way. That sounds uh, yeah. super obnoxious. If that was that really what I said? <laughs> right at the Series A? This is like three months later. I think you've gone from one or two to almost like 10 million ARR. And I look at you, it's like, well, wait a second. This is at a time when... 500 posts was a lot. It was just kind of mind boggling for me to just process yeah. it in the moment. And so I appreciated the fact that you sort of gave me a shot right there and then to take this thing off the table. And you ended up raising it on those terms from, I think, your existing investors. Yeah. That was a story. But you got me. I mean, like that was like brilliant uh, way of fundraising, though, right? To get a, a shake on Second Street here in San Francisco. I think when we did one of the things, one of my 
sort of like views on fundraising is that you shouldn't go out and raise until you already know what the terms are going to be. If you can, you really want to wait until you get to a point where you know that you have bidders on terms that make sense because they're coming to you and saying, I want to do the deal. And so what I remember about the Zenefits Series B is it was very clear that there are internal investors would do the deal on terms that were there or very close to that before we talked to anyone. It made no sense to go out and raise again that quickly, except for the fact that suddenly there were investors that were saying, hey, we're willing to do this like big step up. And I remember that there was this question, which was like, there was all this talk at the time of like the tech bubble. Like that was a really big sort of conversation that a lot of people thought there was a tech bubble and it was going to burst very quickly. What year was this? This was in 2014. And it took a long time before the markets like really dropped. I mean, there was a some small correction in 2016 and then, you know, really not until recently, until 2022 that did happen. But in 2014, everyone was convinced that it was like imminent. And so that fundraising process was more than anything. It was like protection against the potential pending catastrophe in the markets that didn't come. But that was why we did it so quickly. Yeah. You're like, the story of Zenefits is actually quite well-worn. It's everywhere. The thing that you have glanced over that I wanted to double click on is when everything was going to shit and you were getting absolutely destroyed by everybody. You talk about how you were basically in the basement of your house for months, couldn't respond to anybody, crippled by anxiety. I just wanted to get in your head. And the reason I ask this is because, I don't know if you hear this, but I hear this all the time. I want to build Rippling. I want to do what Parker has done. And in the back of my head, I'm like, well, do you want to go through everything that Parker has gone through? Can you share, if you're open to it, just like what you felt like in that time? Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of depression, a lot of shame, a lot of shame because Zenefits's ascent had been so public. And so everyone, this was something that was extended friends and family, like lots of people I went to high school with, went to middle school with, saw the whole upswing and read all the press when things came down. And of course, I was sort of watching that from the sidelines with this growing horror about what was happening in the media, feeling fairly powerless to influence it. So it felt like kind of being stuck in a nightmare and not being able to get out of it. How long did that feeling persist? The feeling of getting stomped on, like anger. How long did that last? Years. I mean, long time. I think it felt like, as it felt like there was like one and only one way out, which was to build like this specific company and make it into a really big outcome. Like I couldn't, yeah. I wasn't really allowed to talk about this what had happened at Zenefits publicly in the way that I wanted to, or some of the ways that I've have since just because with time, it feels like it doesn't matter anymore. And so I stopped reading all of the media about it, which is like, I sort of made a vow to myself and my wife that I wasn't going to read any of the press and have really stuck to that since then. And have not, you know, even as like press has sort of turned around, never kind of read it. And decided that like this was the like one thing that was like this was the way out of this sort of like dark place that I was in. 
that was sort of what got me up in the morning for a long time, for years. And it's not the healthiest motivation, but it was extremely motivating. And at the same time, I also felt a deep conviction and like an enormous amount of confidence that I knew exactly what the market wanted here and like what the product needed to be and what would work and be successful. And so there was this weird, almost like sort of delusional period where, you know, I had this sort of deep depression about what was happening to me at the time while having this just like absolute weird and delusional megalomaniacal conviction that, you know, in just a few years, it would like completely turn around because of what we were going to build. That was sort of like the state of mind for a few years. You have two kids now, right? And a third on the way? Third on the way, yeah. Congrats. Thank you. If your kids come to you and are like, dad, I'm starting a company. Your parents weren't in company building, right? No. How would you respond? If they're like, I'm going to go start a tech company in Silicon Valley. I would encourage them not to do it. I think I would say it can definitely be rewarding. There are many things that I love about my job that I really enjoy. For a while, like all of my motivations around rippling were sort of like chaos and revenge. How long did that last? Sorry, just to interrupt you. Like how long did the motivation of chaos and revenge last at rippling until it was like the pureness of company building? I'll let you know when it switches over. I mean, over time, gradually, there were other things that sort of came in. And the other things really became probably first about the people that I was working with. Yeah. That I really, like the thing I missed most about Zenefits early on were there were just a a set of people that I really enjoyed working with and was able to pull some of those folks, unfortunately, not all of them, but many of them into Rippling. And there were others that I developed similar relationships with at Rippling. And that was probably the thing that was like the most fun, the most positive thing was just like, I really enjoyed the people I was working with. And also like I enjoyed the product that we were working on and the problems that we were solving. And that was like exciting and fun. And so those, I would say those things have just kind of grown over time. And there's sort of like this dull kind of murmur in the background. That's the other stuff. I think the problem, you know, if I was thinking about my kids being entrepreneurs, the thing that I would think of is like, it's very kind of like soul destroying or it can be and often is. And a lot of times like people sort of lionize failure. And some of it may be that I think there are some people that probably are more resilient to failure than I am. But I think that like failure, it's not like a positive thing. Like, you know, it's like, oh, like I learned so much and got so much out, you know, it's like my experience with failure, having had a bunch of them, is that it really sucks and it's very hard to recover from. And I see a lot of people who don't, they have these failures and they just kind of wander off from it and you don't see them really come back from it. And the most that I can say that I've taken away from it is it deep desire not to have it happen again, an incredible paranoia about the possibility that it might. And I think that can be helpful in future endeavors, but I think it, man, it'd be like, I think people who don't do this, it's a much like happier life. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to ask you the same question, but Parker, amongst your entrepreneur friends, do you feel they share the same sentiment as you about starting companies. And the reason I ask all this is because you said it was your only way out was to start rippling basically. 
Do all of your friends who are company building feel the same way as you behind closed doors? Yeah, I think most of them do. Most of them who have done it. Do you feel that way? I guess uh, I see more optimism around failure. Maybe just the, that's how I'm wired or how I perceive the world and how I perceive folks that I've worked with and I continue to work with. And I would you know, actually encourage my kids to go build a company. To do that, yeah. So I think we obviously viewed things a little differently there, but you get to sit in the seat and you've done it now three times, so. Yeah, no, I look, I appreciate that. I mean, it's possible that, you know, maybe I just hold a particularly dim view of it. There will be a point where your kid has this problem that they see in the world, that they've experienced, that they're like, dad, if nobody does this, this isn't going to get fixed. I actually have a hard time seeing you say, you know what? I don't think you should go fix that. There are definitely elements of it that can be a lot of fun. So I feel like when I've started three companies and the first one was just pure naivete. We had no idea what we were getting into. In retrospect, it was like a terrible idea, a terrible approach, a bad sort of angle of attack on everything and just had no idea how hard it was going to be. Why did you start that company? I started the company because I was in this job in what would now be called data science at Amgen in Southern California and was doing really well, but realized that what doing really well looked like from the position that I was in was this like very slow, gradual career path at a large company that I was doing the math. And I was like, geez, it's, I'm never going to get anywhere. I'll be dead before I get into any real position of responsibility. And my roommate from college, who was working at Amazon, wanted to start a business and do a startup. And I was like, geez, I'll be kicking myself as an old man if Mike goes and does this and it works. And like, I didn't do it. <laughs> it was like the FOMO that was like, yeah. that was like, okay, yeah, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. And you know, when you start a company, you tell everyone that you're doing this. You go home for Christmas or whatever, and you're talking to friends or, you know, your parents' friends and you're like, oh yeah, I'm like starting a company. And like secretly in the back of your head, you're thinking when I see you next year, like I'll probably be a billionaire. Like that's sort of what's going through everyone's <laughs> head. Like no, everyone sort of believes yeah. that. And then. And this is what year? This is winter 2006. Okay. So like you guys went to Harvard. So like Harvard dropouts, starting a company, becoming billionaires, right? That's what happens, right? So that's the way it works. Yeah. It's probably what someone, if you're moving to LA to be an actor, you get off the bus and you're like, where do I go to like be a movie star? No one will say that, but like, that's definitely what I was thinking. And I think probably what most people believe yeah. is like failure is not going to happen to me. That of course not. And then each year you kind of go back when you see the same people and they're kind of like, oh, like how's the business going? And you're like, it's not working. And we're like, we're months from not being able to make payroll or weeks from not being able to make payroll. But like, you don't say that you say like, Oh, you know, it's great. You know, and we're fundraising. You know, and, and sometimes people are like, Oh, like, are you guys going to IPO anytime soon? And you're just like, Oh, and that, I don't know that that's hard. I bet that also happened with the other founders in Silicon Valley too. Like when you'd go to founder events, like I've had other guests that were a part of YC that they go to the YC reunions and somehow everyone's crushing it. Everyone's crushing it. I don't know. I haven't had that experience. And maybe it's because I've been very public about my own failures. Yeah. 
that people are more willing to sort of open up with me about that. But like, I would never go to someone and be like, oh yeah, we're crushing it. Just because I think even if you're doing well, it never feels that way. You always sort of see what's not working. Can I interrupt you there for a second? Yeah. Today, Rippling, one of the, you won't say this, but like one of the- Yeah, dar- we're crushing it. One of the darlings. And let's just use valuation as a proxy for darling, like a huge valuation, $11 billion, like triple what Zenefits ever was. Do you feel like you're crushing it today? I feel very fortunate that the company is doing well and that there are a bunch of things that are choices that I think we made along the way that have insulated us or protected us somewhat from the current downturn that most companies are feeling much more profoundly than Rippling has been. But yeah, like even if you were the best company in this environment, and I'm, I'm not saying that we are the best company in this environment, but even if you're the best company in this environment, it's a lot harder today than it was two years ago. Are you still anxious waking up in the mornings? No, probably not. I mean, you're always kind of like, okay, you know, you have to be paranoid. And But like, I wouldn't describe myself as like a big ball of anxiety about the business. I think it's going pretty well. I started it out of a little bit of FOMO, a little bit of naivety, a little bit of feeling like my career path at this big company wasn't clear where it would go or what it led to. And the mistake that we made is that we decided first that we wanted to start a company and then second started looking about for like an idea. And Paul Graham has written, I think, like pretty articulately about the danger of that type of approach and how it yields like very bad startup ideas when you start looking for things that could be startups instead of having first a lot of conviction about a particular problem that you understand yourself or that you know usually you feel yourself in some way and then looking for a solution. And SegFig, we raised a very small amount of money. It felt like an enormously vast amount of money to us early on. We raised two and a half million dollar series A, you know, off of not much more than a PowerPoint deck. But that was like almost the only money we raised for sort of seven years. Like there were a series of other bridge loans and a few capital injections, emergency capital injections and things like that. But we went out in January of 2009, our lead investors came to Mike and I and said, look, we're not going to support you guys. Like there's no money. So like you guys need to go right now and raise your next round, which was terrible advice because it didn't matter who you were. No one was putting money into startups in like January of 2009. Like it was a terrible time. Like we should have like waited nine months and certainly not consumer driven content play, like advertising business models. But we went out and we spent two years pitching about 70 different venture capital firms trying to raise and failing to raise money. We would sort of talk to firms once and then again, sort of nine months later. And what would happen is each time there was sort of a different thing that was on people's minds. They would say, is there, you know, what's your Facebook app strategy? And is there a social local mobile angle to this? It would change every six months what people were sort of thinking about and the area that they wanted to invest in. And I sort of took away from that, like, man, it's just really hard because these things take years to build, but sort of investors, like their sort of focus changes every six months. You know, that was the sort of Web3 
augmented reality, generative AI, like those were the sort of the categories of their day back then that were sort of the themes that people wanted to invest in. And then I got to the end of this process and left the company. And I talked with some companies about working for a company, like I didn't want to start another company, but it was clear that like, man, I was now in my 30s and like the jobs I was looking at, they were like entry-level jobs because I wasn't really qualified to run anything. You're going to go work for someone? I applied a few places. But like, do you really think you could go work for someone? What became clear is that that wasn't going to work because there wasn't like a job. I could sort of be an entry-level kind of person in whatever function. Yeah. But I was way underqualified for the jobs that I kind of wanted. And I remember I emailed when I left, I think like, all of the investors that I had spoken with and I got like two replies. I was like, Hey, I'd love to talk to you about what I'm doing next. Get some advice. And so I felt after that company, like very similarly that it was like, there wasn't another choice. It was sort of like forced into kind of like, okay, there was a very clear path because I sort of knew that there was this problem that I'd faced around insurance, which was that anytime anyone joined the company, I had to stop at Kinko's to fax in their insurance application. That was the only way to get people enrolled in insurance at the time. And then you had to like get deductions set up in payroll. And like there was this sort of awkward back and forth process. And it was like, man, this should really be online and it should be integrated with payroll. You know, and then sort of talking about the insurance market with insurance brokers, I realized, oh my gosh, like there's just a huge amount of money here. Because I would talk with brokers and they would say like, ugh, commissions are like coming down and the carriers are screwing us. And we used to make 9% commissions and now we only make 7% commissions. And I would say, hold up, 7% commissions? Like these insurance premiums are like, they're like $600 a month. And you're telling me you make 7% of that for every employee that's enrolled in the plan? And they were like, yeah, like I'm just going to stop working with small businesses. It's not worth it anymore. And I was like, geez, the math on this, like usually you sell software, the price for a SaaS app at the time was $5. Didn't matter what it was, but every SaaS app was $5, Pepham. And it was like, geez, like that's so much more money. That's what I should do. You know, so that was how I ended up doing this again. And then I did Y Combinator really because I felt like I had struggled so much to raise money that it just seemed like, wow, this they've got it figured out. Everyone who does YC like raises some money. And I think what I actually ended up getting out of the program was much more the sort of sense of urgency that they instill in you really early on. Like there's just a pace of execution that happens for three months in that program. But also like we were able to raise money and and then suddenly like everything that was so hard about raising money- Became easier as benefits. Became really easy because economics of the business made so much more sense. Once everything came crashing down at Zenefits, did you do a similar thing around emailing? Did you get an email? Like, hey, I'm starting another. No, Moon very kindly reached out to me. And I remember having like a great period of time where I was really untouchable. And there were a number of people. Untouchable in a bad way. In a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. And Moon, like at the height of that, reached out. We went for a long walk and we talked about about Rippling and what I thought I was going to do and sort of where I was going to go with it and deeply appreciated sort of at like a really hard time that, you know, he really reached out. And at that point, did you have in your mind that Rippling was coming? 
Did you talk about like, hey, there's going to be another one? Yeah, I remember talking about specifically this idea that the sort of concept at that point in time was customers didn't just want all-in-one, they wanted allest-in-onest. And that you wanted a system to run your business and it didn't matter that some of these things were in the IT department and some of them were in the HR department. You wanted to manage everything about an employee in one place. You know, if you did that, there were all these ways that you could actually build better products, but certainly you could make the back office for a lot of companies much less complex administratively. And so that was what we were talking about was, you know, what if you just like expanded the scope of these systems and started taking on these other areas that like no one else was taking on. Do you remember that walk? I do. Yeah, absolutely. What were you pushing on? What were you asking him? Like, I don't know if you guys remember this clearly or not, but what were you trying to figure out? Yeah, I remember it was in the mission and I was such a huge fan of Parker's. I, I always viewed him as a very decent, good person who's had this desire to build something really great. And the whole Zenefits ordeal didn't take away any of that because I still fundamentally believed in him. From that first moment that, you know, we get to know each other, the Zenefits seed timeframe to the human was still the same. The ambition was still there. So why would I turn my back or the other way? And this is just like, you know, me as a person thinking I've gone deep on the person and knowing them and whatever was written about, I could care less. I knew the person. I knew the source. Yeah. And you guys didn't do anything there, correct? Like you didn't do a deal or anything. This is prior to you raising any money for Rippling. Oh yeah. It was purely conceptual. I think. And did you have to brace yourself before Rippling? Like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it a third time. Oh, for sure. And the like thought of being a billionaire in a year when you go back to your family, I assume that was jaded. Oh yeah. None of that. I felt a lot more confident in the company's eventual success, but also an enormous amount of sort of like, I had like a job to do and it was like, I knew it was going to be grind and a slog through a lot of shit for a number of years. And so both had like a lot of confidence that it was going to work, perhaps delusional confidence that it was going to work, but like deep conviction that it was going to work. And also like a real awareness of what it was going to be like, you know, what the grind was going to be for at least a period of time. I left Senefits thinking I would start a company, but not thinking I would do it so soon and not thinking that it would be in the same area. I mean, Rippling's not in the exact same area, but there are some similarities. It kind of rhymes with, I think Rippling is where I think Zenefits would have become. But what happened is really when I left Zenefits. I agreed to step down. And I thought at the time that that I was doing that to kind of save the company, that me stepping down was going to like save the business and save everyone else's jobs and preserve the value of the equity for me, but also for everyone else, obviously. And then realized very quickly that was not what was going to happen. That actually, I felt the people that took it over were just driving it straight into the ground. When I kind of came to that conclusion, that was where I was like, okay, that's not going to work. But it also means that there's now this opportunity because Zenefits is not going to become what I thought it was going to become. I think the way I described it to people at the time was like, no one else is stupid enough or crazy enough to try and do this thing. And so weirdly, there's an opportunity there because if it works, and I really believed that it would, 
it's going to be fundamentally and foundationally better as a product. Like if you can get there, yeah. if you can build this thing, it'll beat all of the sort of market incumbents. But was the pressure like on a one to 10 all the way on a 10 when you're starting rippling, not only to start a company that avenges the last one, but also to kind of salvage your reputation in your mind. Like this was your way of proving others that not only can you build a business, but you're the one building the business. Like the confluence of those forces, did you feel that or am I making shit up? No. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was intense. I mean, like it was, everything about you was on the line. Oh yeah. One of the things I think that if you're joining a company, particularly early on that people wonder about, particularly if a lot of people believed incorrectly that I had had like a huge financial outcome, you know, as a result of Zenefits and like didn't need to work again or, you know, something like that. And so, you know, I would get a question from people about like, well, you know, like, how committed are you to this? Or they would ask other people like, is Parker like really in this? You know, I felt like I always had a pretty good answer was like, let me tell you what's on the line for me in this thing. Like I'm committed to this in like deep ways that very few other founders are that go way beyond sort of financial motivations or incentives. And usually like people were pretty convinced about that. Did you feel that when it was time? hundred percent. Like you saw like, it was like dripping off of him. The motor was just running inside based on like the fuel being all kinds of vengeance and uh, desire to unfinished business. Ryan Peterson used to joke that he said, this was many years later, but Ryan was a seed investor in Rippling. And he would say that Rippling was part of his revenge portfolio. And I think it was us and Anderol were his like revenge theses on this. It's, you know, it's a powerful motivator for sure. And did you go to your wife before you started Rip? Like, what was the conversation with her like? Her knowing you have kids at home, her knowing where you're coming from, obviously getting dragged through the mud. How did that go at home? She was 100% on board. And I think one of the things that was most difficult for me during the dark times was seeing the impact on my wife and like just the family at, at large. She went through all of this. I mean, she would go to job interviews and get like questions about it, whether people should be concerned kind of thing. I mean, like it was like she had no zero involvement in the company and you know, we'd go get coffee and someone would like snap a picture and post it on Twitter and not in like a positive way. Right. And so she kind of had all this as much as like, I felt this was something that was like happening to me. Like it was really happening to her. Like she had no agency or involvement in it. And so for her, I think she had many of the same feelings that I did about this and like very eager for all the same things that I was eager for. And Mamoon, did you have, obviously the revenge charge is a really powerful one, but like at some point, clearly it hasn't gone away, but at some point you'd think that that's somewhat ephemeral. You know, like, did you push on the motivation at all? Well, I don't think I asked you about the vengeance, the revenge yeah. piece. I sort of knew that was there. Yeah. And I didn't have to ask those questions when we invested at the Series A. It was more that... I knew that that was already 
inside of Parker. I didn't have to push on it. It was him. And it being ephemeral or not, I think it's something that's going to continue to drive you for a very long time, Parker. I just don't think it goes away. Look, so, I mean, two points on this. One is it's nothing that like goes away, but like, you know, there's a risk that I kind of overstate this a little bit. Maybe early on, I was just this sort of bundle of like rage. Sure. But that's not day to day. Like I enormously positive feelings about what I do. And most of why I'm in this are for a set of reasons that I think are reasons that I share with, you know, everyone else who works at Rippling that I really love the problem that we're solving. Or in a weird way, I sort of hate the problem that we're solving. Like, you know, which is, which is like, you know, I, like I'm deeply resentful of all totally. of the administrative work totally. that's required to kind of run these systems and run these companies. And, you know, you get sort of a perverse pleasure out of stomping it out for everyone. And I love the people that I work with. And I think it's like just a fun performance culture. And there's a lot of fair amount of like stress and intensity for everyone, including me, but like really enjoy the day to day there. So I, you know, I think it's important to kind of say that I do actually remember that one story on this topic with Mamoon, which is, I remember very early on Mamoon came to me and sort of for a variety of reasons, it sort of came up kind of like we had a very open conversation about this and Mamoon, not in like a concern about the company way, but I think in more of just a a personal concern was like, Hey, you know, that's kind of dark. Like maybe you should talk to someone about that and introduced me to a coach that I started talking, you know, a, a CEO coach. And at one point the CEO coach did like a 360 degree review where he talked with my executive team about me and feedback for me and about style and substantive things and all that kind of stuff. But one of the questions he asked people is he was like, how do you feel about Parker being so preoccupied with all of this stuff. And it was funny because I think he was expecting everyone to be like, you know, I really, it's kind of like, I have a problem with that. And instead there were like a bunch of people on the team who were like, I hope he never loses it. I hope it sticks with him. And it's like the and dog he was like, that well, you instill. Like, you know, yeah. Like you instill that dog into the company. Yeah. You're self-selecting for a certain type of person. But to be clear, like I have this set of motive. I don't expect anyone else to have, this is not the day to day you know, of the company. Yeah. There's a different set of things, but I think that other set of things, I think the reason we're talking about part of my motivations that we're talking about is because that's the part that's maybe a little bit different. And obviously every company founders are going to really like the team that they work with and enjoy the problem that they're working on and, and that sort of thing. And so that stuff is like definitely there as well. I had a chance to talk with your coach as well. And he said, that's him. Don't let him ever lose it. It's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Was the series A of Rippling as competitive as the one that you missed out on at Zenefits? It was super competitive. It was a very strange dynamic from a fundraising perspective. And it was a strange dynamic for, I think, a couple of reasons. And one was the metrics of the business were incredibly strong. And I think one of the things that I think is important in fundraising is you want to have like shock and awe. So I think like ideally you just like don't want to talk to anyone or have anyone know anything about how the company's doing until you just build up an incredible set of metrics. And then you you really detail all of it and you lay everything out and you just drop it all at once. And I think that's and if you can get everyone interested all at once, like that's the way good outcomes come about. And so I think that 
the metrics of the company were so, they were very strong at the Series A. At the A. And so there was a lot of interest and a lot of, there were a lot of people that wanted to come to the table, but there was obviously also this one really big concern. So Mike Vernal, who ended up leading the Series C from Sequoia, what he told me about this is he said, look, there's one reason to do this deal and there's one reason not to do this deal. And they're both the same reason. Like, and, it, and it, it's like you. And just like different firms came out on different sides of that equation. And so I think there were folks that went really deep on this. And I think it was just this kind of random function of like who you ended up calling for reference checks, where like there were some firms that ended up going super deep on sort of like what had happened. And they came away being like, we feel like enormously confident in this. And then they were like incredibly aggressive about trying to lead the series A. And there were other firms that like maybe talked to a different set of people and were like, we're out. We think this is a huge mistake. And so there was this weird bifurcation with sort of very strange dynamics that were kind of unique to, um, you know, this particular round. Did you feel that way? All the things that he said, like, did you feel something different on the other side? Totally. No, I felt the same way. I think Parker's absolutely right. You could call a certain set of people who I didn't call because I knew what the answer would be. And so I called a different set of people who I thought would be more objective and they had nothing but amazing things to say at Parker. And even the situation, they were in the middle of it. They worked at Zenefits. They were executives at Zenefits because you had to get to the bottom of that because I wasn't in the middle of it. I knew Parker. I had my own judgment of him, the company, all the... And over the years, I had a chance to develop relationships with many of his executives at Zenefits because of looking at the company in subsequent rounds. So, but it's still behooved us to make a bunch of phone calls. If you're writing a $25 million check in a series A, you better have done your work because otherwise, you know, if you're, you have egg on your face uh, a year later, say, Hey, what happened to those reference checks on someone who obviously had a, a, a tainted past? Yeah. We all had to do our work. And I think just as Parker said, we were on the other side of it, uh, myself and Ilya, who were sort of two in a box where, as we're looking at the company. Now this is exactly the kind of founder we want to work with. And I think, Parker, there may have been also a reverse thing on you and you picking us and the time that you brought up, which is like, we're also somewhat of an underdog as a firm. It's sort of hard to call a 45-year-old firm an underdog, but I think you, you sort of maybe appreciated that aspect of us as well. For sure. Yeah. No, I think what was great about KP was that everything that I felt in my interactions with them was like, here was brand is so important for a VC firm. And one of the things that investors bring to companies is this brand imprimatur that, you know, they sort of stamped the company as like, hey, no, this is, this business is legitimate. And that helps you with recruiting candidates. It helps you with customers who might be skeptical about like whether you're going to be around in a year. It helps you with the media. It helps you with subsequent fundraising. And KP has this incredible brand, but also because of the sort of leadership change at the firm had this incredible like energy and hunger and drive that it was very clear that like no one was sort of sitting around resting on the kind of the laurels of the firm. And it was like, that's exciting. You want to work with people like that. Can I give a list of my favorite things that Rippling does? And then I'll let either of you add on to it. And by the way, like these are pretty specific things. And you are the only guest that I've never had that I mention all the time on the show. And I generally pick apart some of these things as examples of like 
Rippling crushes this thing. Um, okay, cool. Okay, so you put your support time status, your responses to support tickets on your website in real time. You average them over 30 days. You talk about how long it takes to get a call back. You talk about how long it takes to resolve something on the first call versus the second call. Nobody does that. Actually, you know, a few companies do now. Now. So Front started doing it. Like a bunch of, it's sort of, it's taken off. (laughs) Like there there are a bunch of other businesses to their credit that are like, hey, this is like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but like. No, I think we were the first. Yeah, I think so too. You have probably the highest density of former founders of any company in Silicon Valley. Is that, do you know the number? Like over 50? Last time we looked at it, it was over 50. We haven't done it for like the last you know year or two. And I'm going to get to why I love that on my next point, which is that you're building a compound startup, which is what you call it, which I think of it as like, rather than doing things sequential, it's just doing things in parallel in some way. And I think the founder thing is a key component of that. You run payroll. You are the only payroll administrator of your company. How big is the company now? About 2,300 people. So you approve all? I run payroll across a dozen countries, manage benefits, open enrollment, a lot of sort of IT and app access policies. I approve every expense over $10. You know, the whole, <laughs> the whole, the, the whole thing in the system, not because I'm like anal retentive, but because we have a spend management product. And so yeah, it's that like masochistic wanting to feel the pain, wanting to understand, like, what am I looking for? You know, what are the things that I find? What are the issues? How could we improve the product, make it easier, you know, for people that aren't going to spend a lot of time, how could we give them tools to be more effective for people that are going to go deep on every expense? How do we save them time as they're doing that? You hired very senior execs very early in the tenure of Rippling. I think your CFO was early, like way earlier than most companies, than what conventional wisdom would say. You are building a business on the back of SMBs, generally speaking, like not large enterprise. There is no allure of going to the Fortune 100 off the jump. Conventional wisdom would say that's not a good idea. You have built almost five new SKUs a year, five new SKUs a year. How many SKU, How many products does Rippling have now? I think it's like two dozen. It's a bunch. Five a year. Okay, I'll pause there. Am I missing? Are there any other favorites that you have of unique things that Rippling does that I'm missing or you, Mamoon? No, that's a good list. Anything else besides Parker, maybe? That's a great list. Yeah, I know. I think about Matt McInnes, again, another former founder, CEO. We went to Harvard with, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know you guys went to school together. Yeah. Yeah. We were classmates that worked on the newspaper together. Can I ask about a few of these? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go into it. So your title on LinkedIn is customer support. I guess the thing that I think about is like you literally sitting behind your laptop doing really menial work. Doesn't that get old? Aren't you like, God, I'm the CEO of Rippling. I don't know. Do you ever think that this is old or tired work for you? We have like a set of leadership principles or or company values. And there's one of them in particular that I really gravitate towards and really like, which we call go and see. And I think that my view on this is that the best executives are the ones that spend enough time all the way on the ground floor, like really understand what's happening bottoms up in their function. And when things go wrong, The only way that I've found to fix things when things go wrong, like there are sort of two schools of thought. One of them is like, 
when things go wrong, you start top down. You go to the executive of the function, you, you know, sort of, okay, well, if things are going wrong, like we need to replace the executive or bring in new management or, you know, something like that. Not to say that sometimes that's not what you need to do, but I think like usually the only way to really solve it is to go all the way to the ground floor and look at the actual support tickets or watch the sort of sales call recordings, do an implementation. Like those are the things that give you the sort of insight about what's actually the problem. And then after that, you can reconstruct the chain of accountability and sort of say, okay, why did it require me to go do this? Like, why wasn't the person underneath me and the person underneath them and the person underneath them? Why weren't they doing this themselves? And why didn't they see this problem or understand this problem before it made it up to my level? And then there are a set of things you need to do to fix that. Another way of saying this is I think that anecdata is usually a lot more powerful than data when trying to understand problems within a company. Because when you look at data, the data is already framed to answer a specific set of questions that you might have as the executive in a company. And when there's a problem, you usually don't know like what the right question is to ask because you don't know what the problem is. And so you're, you're missing, the data is not framed in the right way. And if you go all the way down to like the anecdata, you just get a lot more context that gets lost when things get rolled up and aggregated into like a chart or a dashboard. There was a period of time when I was like the support rep for the company and that lasted till after our series A. I'm not the support rep for the company anymore, but like often if people are struggling with the product, I think in part because my title on LinkedIn says customer support. I've also seen you on Twitter literally responding to tickets. People will reach out to me and so that then I can kind of get involved that way in, in those cases. And I think that like that I'm like running payroll every day or using products in Ripplane. It's what gives me like the right to an opinion about what we're doing or what we should be doing and gives me a lot of confidence in my opinions about that. And I think if you don't stay grounded in that stuff, you can end up very quickly just like making the wrong sort of fundamental calls. So that's like why I do it. I mean, this week we had open enrollment that's going on in a couple of different countries for Rippling, a bunch of of pay runs. You know, today was like payday for bi-weekly employees, semi-monthly employees in like a bunch of different countries. So a lot of pay runs that had to be submitted, a lot of like little things that needed to be adjusted here to get that through. We just switched over to our own bill pay product. And so one of the things I didn't realize when we did this is I thought if you had asked me a month ago, like how many bills Rippling pays each month, I would have been like, I don't know, like a dozen, maybe two dozen. And the real answer is it's like a hundred a day. I mean, it's crazy so like suddenly we switched over our bill pay product. And so now all the bills are coming to me because of the same reasons that I'm, you know, the only, and I won't put finance in the system until we get to some sort of like level of kind of like things are working really well. Mm-hmm. And so now there's like hundreds of bills that, that I need to deal with, but like that stuff. So there's a lot of administrative work, but at the same time, it's like leading to lots of product initiatives like everywhere across, you know, of like things we need to fix or things we need to change or how we need to do things differently. I think it's really important or it's, it's the thing that I think is most important about my job is that I like keep doing that stuff. All the founders listening that have told me they want to do what Parker does at Rippling, I think are asking themselves again if that's the case. Yeah, I'm not sure most founders have the stomach probably because I, I've seen at least half a dozen occasions where I've sent you something really 
just random from someone who I don't even know about the product and I forwarded to you and within minutes you've gone really deep on that just so you can make sure your customers are happy. So it's just like part the core DNA of Parker. It's incredible. Can you talk about the compound startup? Maybe within the context of how software tends to go through unbundling and rebundling? Yeah. I think we've been building software wrong for the last 20 years. There's this conventional wisdom that the way to build good products is to build extremely narrow products and sort of ever narrower products is sort of that's the trend that's happened over the last kind of 20 years. And I think that actually you can build much better products if you try and build in what I call this compound way where you're building many different products at once. And no matter how many times I describe this, people always somehow understand this as you're building less good versions of products, but that happen to be integrated and that's the benefit. And that's not what I mean at all. I think you're actually, you can build better underlying products. And the reason is, you know, first that a lot of the deepest problems at companies end up being business process or or workflow problems about how they manage decision-making or workflow within their organization. And a lot of those end up spanning multiple departments, certainly multiple like point solution software companies. And a lot of the sort of complexity around that comes from the fact that these problems bridge different systems. And so one thing that you can do is when you build these things in an integrated way, you can solve like the deeper problem than what point solution. It's not just about single sign-on and identity. It's about how do you manage access to all of the systems that you use in your company? How do you make sure that employees are configured correctly within them? And how do you make sure that everything gets adjusted across the employee life cycle? You know, like as employees are hired, but then of course their job changes. They move to a different work location. They get promoted. They change departments. All of those things have implications for all these downstream systems. And eventually they leave and you need to revoke access all at once. And the second reason I think you can build better products is that one of the things that I found is that there are some a set of needs that customers have in business software systems that end up being conserved across a surprisingly varied array of business software verticals that, you know, if you talk to a customer and you're like, what's the difference between an SMB TNA system, time and attendance. So, you know, employees like clocking in, tracking hours, calculating overtime. What's the difference between like the sort of most kind of brittle plastic versions of that product you know, that might only sell to like very, very small companies, but that people are going to quickly outgrow versus the products that call them enterprise grade products or just like the very best products on the market. Like what are the key differences? And, you know, if you were to ask the same question for companies that buy corporate travel software, why do people upgrade from, I don't know, trip actions to concur or from whatever system to like the enterprise grade versions of those products? you end up hearing the same answers again and again across all these different verticals, which is people do this because of analytics and reporting. They do it because they need more sophisticated or just the presence of any workflow automations, role-based permissions, approvals, custom policies, and the list goes on from there, but there are a set of things that you end up seeing again and again and again. 
And one of the things that you can do when you're building a compound software business is that you can take those abstractions and you can build them as abstractions, which means that you can go 50 times as deep on those concepts. And so when Rippling builds a new product, like our goal is always, we want to take the stuff that's like very specific to this one software vertical and we want to tie the best in class companies on the market for all of that stuff. We definitely don't want to lose, but our goal is to sort of meet them and tie on that stuff. But then what's going to happen is in every Rippling product, we're going to beat all of our point SaaS competitors on the depth of our reporting and analytics capabilities, our workflow automations, approvals, role-based permissions. Like you're going to just have the most sophisticated system in the world on those dimensions. And you get this deep integration with employee data, which unlocks product capabilities across all of these different product verticals and this deep integration with all of the other products at Rippling. And so on the whole, we think that we can beat all of the sort of point solution competitors that we have purely on the product because of all of the product capabilities that we get for free from building in this way. And that's the idea. And I think it's a harder way to build a company because getting there is more difficult. It takes more time. It takes more R&D effort up front. But it's also a global minima. Wallace, I think a lot of the businesses that we've been building, the software businesses that we've been building for the last 20 years have been like local minima. It's peeling off a feature or some kind of narrow element of what you might have seen in like the big systems of the past, like, you know, Oracle or SAP or something like that. And you turn it into a standalone SaaS company. And at first, that's great because everything was shifting from on-prem to SaaS. Customers get this SaaS version of this thing that was part of this like on-prem monolith before. But what, what's happening is now there are like five competitors in all of those spaces. But the global minima is actually to kind of rebuild these all-in-one systems with all of the deep advantages of integration, you know, sort of these we're super powerful component middleware products, bundled contracting and pricing for end users. And so I think there's this wave of rebundling that's starting to happen in software because, you know, now that there's some stability in the underlying delivery vectors for software that it's like, okay, now it's cloud and SaaS native. You know, the transition from on-prem to cloud is like reasonably complete all of the advantages that you know everyone used to take for granted before that dislocation are starting to dominate again. And that creates an opportunity for businesses like Rippling. This is a weird analogy, but tell me if you agree or disagree. Hearing you talk, it reminds me of Costco, where you come, you want everything with your membership. As soon as you walk in, you really recognize what's going on in the store and you want to walk out with everything. Costco has their native alcohol or golf balls and then they provide all the other ones combined with Salesforce where it has all the, in your case, employee data rather than customer data. It's like the upside down version of those two worlds combined. That's all I could think of. Yeah. So the analogy that I like to use that to be clear, I'm stealing from Larry Ellison is that it's like if you bought a car 
And the way, instead of buying a car, the way that you did this is you went out and you bought a carburetor from one company and a steering wheel from another and a chassis from a third. And like you brought all these components home to your driveway and you sort of tried to bolt it together like Ikea furniture and then drove the car down the street. Of course, you'd have parts falling off. You know, of course, it would be an enormous amount of work for you to have to have a whole team of mechanics to like maintain it. That's the way most companies buy software today is like that process. But if you think about it that way, like, of course, that doesn't make any sense. Like you want to buy a car. You want to buy a great car. You're not buying like a crappy car. You need the car to have all of those individual elements need to be best in class. But buying them all from like completely separate vendors doesn't make any sense. I got to wrap things up. I appreciate you both doing this. Turns out scheduling between the two of you is not easy. So I'm thrilled. Maybe in 20 years, we'll do one with you and your daughter and uh, see where she ends up on, uh, on the if career. she's starting her first company. Exactly. And Mamoon's funding it. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you both. I wrap all these the same. The first, are you hiring? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? Go ahead. We're definitely hiring. I mean, we're always looking for great entrepreneurs, you know, maybe founders whose company didn't work out. And like me, they're looking not to start another company. We One of the great things that we can do is we give people a way to effectively start a business in Rippling and run it as the general manager. And we solve for a lot of things for people. Like we can point a fire hose of distribution at new products. And so if you can build something great, we can really make sure that if you build it, they will come. And it can be like enormously rewarding and also just like a great career option for people who are in that situation. And also a huge contributor to the velocity of products that are getting released is these types of folks. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? Probably like sticking at it when things get hard. I think everybody else after an hour and a half is going to think of you. So thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, I think uh, Parker, I would say you're the most complete founder and CEO that I've ever worked with. So, Oh, thank you. I appreciate you, man. Thank you both. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.